June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the coronavirus has now claimed the life of an American within the U.S., and the number of infected has increased and now includes cases of unknown origin. Meanwhile, the Trump administration scrambles to calm fears of Americans concerned with the spread of coronavirus and its impact on the economy as the stock market has its worst week since the 2008 financial crisis. Plus, it's a big win for former Vice President Joe Biden in South Carolina. As the candidates head to Super Tuesday, can he stop Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders? And we are very much alive. Former Vice President Joe Biden won South Carolina and won it big. You launched Bill Clinton, Barack Obama to the presidency. Now you launched our campaign on the path to defeating Donald Trump. This campaign is taken off. With 14 states up for grabs in just two days, Biden's victory gives a boost to establishment Democrats hoping to deny Bernie Sanders the nomination. There are a lot of states in this country. Nobody wins them all. We'll talk with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders about the race. Plus, as the coronavirus crisis prompts questions of whether or not the U.S. is ready to handle a pandemic, the politics of preparedness becomes a big issue. I don't think it's inevitable. I probably will. It possibly will. Now the Trump administration faces a crisis of its own, calming and reassuring the American public. We are preparing for the worst. We are ready. We are ready. Because there's no reason to panic. But it's been a rough week of mixed messages and attacks on familiar targets. The, the press was, 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 was covering their, their hoax of the day because they thought it would bring down the president. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. This is their new hoax. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar and former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb will both be here. Then, the Trump administration signs a peace deal with the Taliban to end the war in Afghanistan. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is just back from that signing ceremony with the Taliban, and we will talk to him. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. It was a knockout win for former Vice President Joe Biden last night in the South Carolina primary. He got nearly half the vote, coming in close to 30 points ahead over his closest competitor, Senator Bernie Sanders. CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto is here to tell us more. So, Anthony, how did Joe Biden do this? Morning, Margaret. Big keys for him, first of all overwhelming support from black voters. That was key, and they make up most of the electorate in South Carolina. That was really helped 
by an endorsement from Representative Jim Clyburn, the most influential African-American politician in the state, more saying that was important than not. And then finally, big support among those looking for electability. That's somebody they feel can go on to beat Donald Trump in November. The question now, Margaret, is can Joe Biden parlay that argument into Super Tuesday? And we'll get details and forecasts from you on Super Tuesday ahead, Anthony. We turn now to Senator Bernie Sanders. He is on the campaign trail in Norfolk, Virginia. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Margaret. Is this now a two-man race? Well, all I can say is we have won the popular vote in Iowa. We won the New Hampshire uh, primary. We won the Nevada caucus. We lost last night. We're looking forward to Super Tuesday. I think we got a great chance to win in California, uh, in Texas, uh, in Massachusetts, and a number of states around the country. But South Carolina is the first southern state. Does that indicate anything to you about your prospects in places like Virginia and, and North Carolina? Will Joe Biden really challenge you there? Well, we're going to see. I mean, I think based on the polling, we're doing pretty well in Virginia. I think we got a shot in North Carolina. All I can say is the issues that we are talking about, and that is health care is a human right, raising the minimum wage to a living wage, dealing forcefully with the existential threat of climate change. Those are ideas, Margaret, that I think are resonating all across this country. I think we have an excellent chance to do well on Tuesday and to win the Democratic nomination. Joe Biden is blanketing the airways this morning. Uh, we know from your campaign that you raised $46 million in February. That's a significant number. What do you think that does for you going into Super Tuesday? What edge? Well, Margaret, it is not only, it is not only the amount of money that we raised, and that is a phenomenal amount. It's how we raised it. We don't have a super PAC like Joe Biden. I don't go to rich people's homes like Joe Biden. I think Joe has contributions for more than 40 billionaires. What we have done is received more campaign contributions from more Americans than any candidate in the history of the United States, averaging $18.50. This is a campaign of working people and by working people, and I'm extraordinarily proud of that. But we have enough money now, not only to take us through Super Tuesday, but take us through the entire process fueled by the contributions of working-class people all across this country. Your campaign said that if you are the nominee, you won't accept the financial help that Michael Bloomberg has offered. He said he'd extend it to any party nominee. Do you really want to turn down his bankroll? Well, look, Mr. Bloomberg is free to do anything he can with his $60 billion, uh, and that's legal. Uh, all I can say is at this point, we are confident that we can receive the kind of campaign funding that we need from working class and middle class people, that we don't have to be beholden to any powerful special interest. Look, one of the things that upsets people, so you whether you conservative it. or progressive, is I didn't say that. What I would say right. is that he has the right to do anything he wants. Right now, we are confident, Margaret, based on the fundraising that we are doing is that we can beat Trump. But you are a democratic socialist. You have never officially entered the Democratic Party. In fact, you constantly criticize Democratic establishment. So how can you convince the country that you are the best candidate to unify Democrats and challenge President Trump? Well, two points. I'm a member of the Democratic leadership. I've been in the Democratic caucus for my, you know, virtually my first day back in Congress 30 years ago. And from in the state of Vermont, where I live, I'm a, a supported by Democrats that have won the Democratic primary. But we will win because we have an agenda that speaks to independents, to Democrats, and to more than a few Republicans. Look, we are living at a time when the American people are sick and tired of the kind of income and wealth inequality that exists in America all over this country, Margaret, and I have been all over this country. You got millions of people who are working 11, 12 bucks an hour. They can't afford child care. Mm -hmm. They can't afford health care. They're scared to death about their retirement. They want a government that represents them, not just billionaire campaign contributors. That's how you win. You put together that coalition, multi-generational, multi-racial. That is what we're doing. No campaign out there has a stronger grassroots movement than we do. That's how you beat Trump. And by the way, almost all of the national polls out there, you know, the last 70 polls, 65 of them, I think, have us beating Trump. We're yep. beating him in battleground states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. We can beat Trump. 
You have rallies planned out in California. Uh, there is very much a concern about the spread of the coronavirus on the West Coast. Is it safe for you? Have you spoken to any uh, government officials about whether people can really appear at your rally and not worry about their own health? Well, actually, we have. I mean, that's a very fair question. And my campaign has spoken to public health officials on that issue. And right now, uh, we are planning to do rallies not only in California, uh, but in Utah, Minnesota, uh, and other states around the country. You've been sparring with the pro-Israel lobby known as APAC. Uh, you said it gives a platform for bigotry, which was seen as a swipe at Prime Minister Netanyahu. Today, Israel's ambassador to the U.N. says of you uh, that you're not welcome in that country. And anyone who calls our prime minister a racist is either a liar, an ignorant fool, or both. Do you see a political cost in taking on the pro-Israel lobby in this way? Yeah, I do. I mean, they have a lot of money. They have a lot of power. Look, I'm Jewish, and I'm very proud of my Jewish heritage. As a kid, I spent time in Israel. I am not anti-Israel. I will do everything I can to protect the independence and the security and the freedom of the Israeli people. But what we need in this country is a foreign policy that not only protects Israel, but deals with the suffering of the Palestinian people as well. You got 70% youth unemployment in Gaza. People can't even leave that district, that area. Major, major crises. It is not sustainable. There will be continued conflict in the Middle East until the United States develops an even-handed policy. Yeah. So I am pro-Israel. I am pro-Palestinian. I want to bring people together to finally achieve peace in that region. I want to ask you, on foreign policy, the president just authorized a deal with the Taliban. What do you think of that? Because if you're commander-in-chief, you'd either follow through with it or halt the withdrawal of U.S. troops. Well, I don't have enough details, and that peace agreement, needless to say, is going to have to go through the Afghan government. We don't know what's going to happen. One of the difficulties, to be very honest, Margaret, in dealing with Trump, it is very hard to believe anything that he says. Uh, whether it's the coronavirus, whether it's going on in Afghanistan. But it is my view that the United States, and I, I speak as somebody, helped lead the opposition to getting us into the war in Iraq. It is my view that we got to end endless wars, that when we have 500,000 people in America sleeping out on the street and people can't afford health care, we got to mm -hmm. invest in this country, not in uh, endless wars. All right. Senator Sanders, thank you for joining us. Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg has not yet appeared on a ballot, but that will change Tuesday. He sat down with our Scott Pelley yesterday in an interview for tonight's 60 Minutes. Here's a preview. How do you view this emergency? Um, I find it incomprehensible that the president would do something as inane as calling it a hoax, which he did last night in South Carolina. He, he said that the Democrats making so much of it is a Democratic hoax, not that the virus was a hoax. Um, this is up to the scientists and the doctors as to whether there is a problem. They all around the world say that it is in some places and has enormous potential to become one elsewhere. And it is just ignorant and irresponsible to not stand up and be the leader and say, we don't know, but we have to prepare for the fact that if it is, we have the medicines and the structure and the knowledge to deal with it. Scott's interview with Mayor Bloomberg will air tonight on 60 Minutes. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We want to take a closer look at the growing fears over COVID-19, commonly referred to as the coronavirus. Last week, the World Health Organization said the global risk of the virus spreading is now very high. 
Here in the U.S., there are now 71 cases of coronavirus, and worldwide, the death toll is almost 3,000. There are also concerns about the global economy. Here in the U.S., the stock market took its biggest hit last week since the 2008 financial crisis. We begin today with Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. Good to have you here. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So we just had the first American death on U.S. soil out in Washington state. What do we know about how the virus was contracted and how much it has spread? So this individual, and uh, we just want to express our sympathy certainly for his family uh, and for all who are suffering from the coronavirus. This individual uh, was in the hospital out in, Calif out, out in uh, Washington. We do not know how he contracted the virus yet. And so that's why we and the state of Washington are deployed out there to try to trace who he had contact with and how he might have gotten the virus. That's why we call it right now a potential community case, meaning we don't have a discernible connection to any travel to Korea or China or any other impacted area. So at this point, you don't know if this person came into contact with anyone. He just showed up sick at the hospital? Uh, we have no evidence so far that establishes a connection to somebody who traveled to an impacted area. Uh, and so we do not know how he contracted the virus. That's really what we do. That's the basic blocking and tackling right now of public health is uh, we're going to trace the people that he had contact with. We're going to trace the other cases. There's a nursing home that sends patients to this hospital, and there are cases in that nursing home. But who spread to whom, we do not know yet. The president yesterday when he was speaking referred to this fatality as a woman. It is a man. It, How yes. is a mistake like that made? Because people are very nervous right now and getting some of these basic facts right affects public trust. Well, I understand that. It's a very fast-moving situation. Our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were up late at night, very early in the, early in the morning, working with the Washington State Public Health Office and inaccurately recorded that the individual was a female. That's what the president was briefed on. They've apologized for incorrectly briefing on that, but it's a very fast-moving situation. Obviously, we regret the error. Given that it is so fast-moving, what are your projections now? How many Americans do you expect to come down with this virus. So what your viewers need to know is the risk to average Americans remains low. We are working to keep it low. We will see more transmission of cases in the United States. We've got the finest public health system in the world here. This is what we do. We cannot make predictions as to how many cases we'll have, but we will have more, and we will have more community cases. It's simply just a matter of math. Well, you have to have a number you're working with in order to make sure that you have adequate supply, things like testing kits, right? So uh, we, we how don't, are we on shortages? You may not want to tell me the number, but you have one in your head. You're no, we don't. We, we don't. We do not use, because it is an unknown, the epidemiological spread of this virus in a highly developed healthcare system that was on it with at the most aggressive containment measures in the history of the United States. It is unknown how that will spread. In terms of testing kits, we've already tested over 3,600 people for the virus. We now have 70, the capability in, out in the field to test 75,000 people, and within the next week or two, we'll have a radical expansion even beyond that of the testing that's available. In Washington State, in places that have declared emergencies, even shutting down schools, I mean, they are projecting numbers themselves. Uh, they might make projections of numbers themselves, but we are not. We'll take aggressive public health measures. It's what we call community mitigation steps. So uh, depending on the nature of the disease and depending on what we learn from these in-the-field investigations, mm -hmm. the state and local government will take measures appropriate to contain the spread of the disease. So in France, they shut down the Louvre Museum. They're telling people don't kiss, don't shake hands. In Japan, they're closing schools for a month. Canada's health minister told his people to start stockpiling food. In the U.S., there are closures, as we just said, in Washington and in Oregon. They've declared a state of emergency out there. And the CDC said this week disruption to everyday life might be severe. Might. Might. That's what, what does that mean? I mean, so, Americans hear this and they are concerned. There's a, about a 2% fatality rate. And I, I appreciate that people are concerned. And that, that is why we're being radically transparent about what we know and also what the full range of potential scenarios could be. And that's why we say might be, but also might not be with aggressive containment and mitigation steps. Right now, it's important for people to understand we're not advising any types of particular measures in the United States like travel restrictions or closures. State or local uh, public health offices, which are the front lines of response, 
might make their own decisions to do that. But at this point, we do not have sufficient spread in the United States that would indicate those measures, but we're not taking any of them off the table. The full range of options will always remain on the table. In a crisis, you need public trust. Mm -hmm. An inspector general uh, announced this week that they are looking into this complaint by a whistleblower, uh, that your agency did not provide adequate training or equipment to those workers who went to receive and welcome back Americans who had been evacuated from Wuhan, China. And those workers were not tested for the virus after they had that contact. Have you personally looked into these allegations? Yes, we are, we are looking into these allegations. I'm personally involved in doing so. So can First, you say that this wasn't something that tipped off the spread on the West Coast? Uh, that is absolutely not the case. So first, we take the protection of our employees very seriously. Second, we want to make sure isolation and quarantine procedures are followed as appropriate. Third, we appreciate the whistleblower bringing forward any concerns. We are aggressively looking into any, if to see whether there's validity to the concerns. But what the American people should need to know is that we now have passed well over 14 days since any HHS employee had contact with the individuals involved. They are not, nobody is symptomatic, nobody has the disease. Even if these allegations prove to be true, there was no spreading the disease from this. Mm -hmm. And we have offered, even though it is not medically indicated, we have offered to test any HHS employees involved. If they would like that extra peace of mind, we want to do that for employees. There are cases of the coronavirus in Mexico and in Canada. Yesterday, the president said he is considering and looking at closing the southern border. What well, will decide that? Are you looking at that? Uh, that's not one of the highest priority areas that we're looking at right now because Mexico only has a couple of cases. Canada's epidemiology is similar to the United States right now. What the president's making clear, though, is we'll always be looking at travel restrictions, border protections. We will take whatever measures are appropriate and necessary to protect the American people, but we don't forecast doing that anytime soon. Do you expect drug shortages, as some senators have highlighted concerns there could be because of disruption to the supply chain? So we're very concerned about the intermingling of our supply chain with China in particular. Uh, we, the FDA has gone out and worked proactively with drug manufacturers, and there are 20 drugs for which the entire molecule or a critical element of the molecule is made exclusively in China. And so we're working aggressively with the, with the manufacturers to determine if there are any shortages. We are aware of one drug uh, which has many, many replacements in terms of that therapeutic class available uh, that may be in shortage for a short period of time. But I'm not able to, because it's commercially confidential information that's submitted voluntarily to us, I'm not able to discuss that. But this is a drug in a class where there are many, many, many alternatives available. It's a generic drug, very available. All right, uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time. And we will be right back with another cabinet official, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, so stay with us. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Yesterday, the U.S. signed a deal with the Taliban that may lead to a full withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Since it began in 2001, the war has claimed the lives of more than 2,400 American troops. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is just back from the signing ceremony in Doha. He got off the plane just a short while ago, and thank you for being here, Mr. Secretary. Thank you. So this is significant, um, and according to the deal that was released... The U.S. will bring down troops to 8,600 in the next 135 days, and then if conditions are met, a total withdrawal within 14 months. But the president said yesterday, if bad things happen, we'll go back in. What's the benchmark there? Uh, yes, ma'am. This was a historic day. American blood and treasure have been expended in this place for an awfully long time. We went there after 9-11. No one still feels the anger of that day any more than I do. But it was time. And the Taliban knew it was time. President Trump has allowed us to take the fight to the Taliban these last two years, and we have done so. It's why they, for the first time, have announced that they're prepared to break with their historic ally, al-Qaeda, who they've worked with, to much to the de detriment of the United States of America. You can see it. Go read the document. The Taliban have now made the break. They've said they will not permit terror 
to be uh, thrust upon anyone, including the United States, from Afghanistan. This is historic in that way, and no one should underestimate the Trump administration. You can see our work on counterterror, whether it's al-Baghdadi, Qasem al-Rimi, uh, the work that we did against Qasem Soleimani. This is a president who is committed to defending and protecting the American people. We'll do that every place we battle against terror, whether that's Afghanistan or any of the other dozens of places we push back each and every day. How long would it take to get U.S. troops out? Because you're saying this is based on conditions. That means the Taliban has to follow through on a few things. Uh, yes. So what would make the president hit the brakes and stop the withdrawal? Uh, look, we can't get into hypotheticals about what it would take exactly, but there is a detailed set of commitments that the Taliban have made about the levels of violence that uh, can occur, the nature of what's got to take place. We are hopeful that in the coming days there will be intra-Afghan negotiations that commence as well. That has not happened before. It's going to be rocky and bumpy. No one, no one is under any false illusion uh, that this won't be a difficult conversation. But that conversation for the first time in almost two decades will be among the Afghan people. And that's the appropriate place for that conversation to take place. We're, we're prepared to do what it takes to ensure that we keep America safe. We've asked everyone there to reduce the levels of violence, both the Afghan National Security right. Forces and the Taliban. President Trump said he's going to meet with the Taliban in the near future. When? Where? Is that Camp David? I don't know when. I don't know where. I'm very confident. President Trump wants to make sure that everyone in Afghanistan understands that the United States is committed to making sure that this conversation takes place. We've been at this for an awful long time. You recounted the loss of American life. There's a better path forward. The Taliban now know this because of the work that we've done, and President Trump will be actively engaged in helping us get the conditions right and beginning this uh, journey that the first step was taken in Doha yesterday. We're going to take a break and continue the conversation on the other side of it. Please stay with us. We hope you will too. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Face the Nation, and we are continuing our conversation with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who is just back in the U.S. after signing a deal with the Taliban in Doha. Um, and just that statement alone is kind of amazing. Uh, you were the first U.S. cabinet official to ever meet with a member of the Taliban. I think you actually met with one of the founding members of the Taliban who was involved. I met in with this. a senior negotiator yesterday, yes. You, you, you called them terrorists in the past. Do you still mm -hmm. consider the Taliban terrorists? They have an enormous amount of American blood on their hands. And apparently in a partnership still with al-Qaeda. Nope. They said yesterday, signed a document, the gentleman I met with, agreed that they would break that relationship and that they would work alongside of us to destroy, deny resources to, and have al-Qaeda depart from that place. And you trust that? Don't trust anything. We're going to deliver. It's about actions. The agreement set out the conditions. It set out the space. But no, this deal doesn't depend upon trusting anyone. It has a deep, complex, well-thought-out, multi-month negotiated verification complex and mechanism by which we can observe and hold every member of the agreement accountable. We'll do that. It's not about trust. It's about what happens on the ground, not only yesterday, which was an important day, but in the days that follow. Uh, the U.S. pledged in this agreement, which is public, as you say, that it will help to get up to 5,000 Taliban prisoners released. The president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, says no way, no how. He, the, nothing like that was agreed to. All this is supposed to happen in the next 10 days. Did the U.S. agree to help release 5,000 prisoners? You saw what the document says. It says we will work with so all Ghani, relevant... What he's saying is wrong? It says that we will work with all relevant parties to build on confidence, to create confidence, building measures amongst all of the parties, the Afghan government, uh, non-Taliban, and others in the Afghan... We, we want this to be an inclusive process. But it's we want, a process. We want women in, we, we want, we want women days. to involve. There'll, there'll be lots of people say things. There'll be lots of noise. Everyone's competing for attention and time in the media. What matters is the actions that we take, the discussions that we had. We have come a long ways. And we have worked not only yesterday while I was in Doha, Secretary of Defense was in Kabul, along with NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg. They made a declaration. There was a commitment from the Afghan government, too. We've made a lot of progress. No one's under any illusion that this will be straightforward. Uh, we've built an important base where we can begin to bring American soldiers home, reduce the risk of the loss of life of any American in Afghanistan, 
and hopefully set the conditions so the Afghan people can build out a peaceful resolution to their now what for them is a 40-year struggle. Well, putting 5,000 or up to 5,000 fighters back on the field is obviously would have a significant impact on, on any of the implementation, one would think. So, are, are, so there have been, do you expect there, this there, to actually there happen? Have, there have been prisoner releases from both sides before. We've managed to figure our path forward. We'll know who these people are. We are working to build out a set of confidence measures that will do for America what President Trump has committed. Reduce our cost in blood and treasure and keep America safe from terrorism. I don't think any American can doubt President Trump's seriousness in that. Uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican, and about 20 who allies. Well. Uh, who you know well, wasn't very happy with you this week, though, because she released a public letter uh, saying that there are problems with this, that you, you, you are pretending that the Taliban can be counterterrorism partners and saying, you know, the Taliban's still allied with al-Qaeda, and pointing out you personally, when you were a member of Congress, mm -hmm. she suggested, wouldn't accept a deal like this, that you raised concerns uh, about secret side deals that the Obama administration had cut with Iran right. back then, so that well, any kind of well, annex... Yes. She says there are secret annexes to yeah, this she, deal. She, uh, I'm happy to talk with her. There, there are there? Are, there are no annexes that the members of Congress won't have a chance to see. Meaning there the are public, the public document that will be shared with Congress? The public document was released yesterday. There are two implementing elements that will be provided. They are secret. They are military implementation documents that are important to protect our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. Every member of Congress will get a chance to see them. They're classified secret. There aren't any side deals. Remember the side deals I was complaining about were deals that the American side mm -hmm. never got to see. John Kerry never got to see those side deals. This is this is not that. This is a fully transparent arrangement. And as so for, there's no as, deal as, to as, keep a certain U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. And there, the document that was made public yesterday is the complete agreement. The implementing elements of that will be available for every member of Congress to see. Know this. Uh, I saw what Congresswoman Cheney said, and I have an enormous amount of respect for her. The American people should know. Donald Trump is not going to take words on a paper. We're going to see if the Taliban are prepared to live up to the commitments they've made. The Bush administration and the Obama administration both tried to get the words that were on the paper yesterday, that the Taliban would break from al-Qaeda publicly. We got that. That's important. Now, time will tell if they'll live up to that commitment is our expectation. They have promised us they will do so, and we'll be able to see on the ground everything they do or choose not to do. Well, it's a historic agreement. Thank you Secretary, much, thank you for coming on to talk about it. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. was businessman Tom Steyer doing a little pre-primary dance in South Carolina. He did come in third, but he had hoped to do better, and he dropped out of the race last night. The rest of the candidates have moved on to Super Tuesday, and that's this Tuesday when 14 states will hold contests, among them California and Texas. We have some new CBS News battleground tracker numbers for both of them. Out in California, Senator Bernie Sanders is up with 31 percent support. Former Vice President Joe Biden and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren come in behind Sanders with 19 and 18 percent, respectively. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has 12 percent, and the rest of the field comes in at under 10 percent. Looking to Texas, the race is tighter. Bernie Sanders is in the lead here with 30 percent, but Joe Biden close behind him with 26 percent, and Elizabeth Warren comes in at 17 percent support. Michael Bloomberg is at 13 percent, and the rest of the field comes in at 6 percent or less. Joining us once again is CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto, and we want to bring in CBS News political correspondent Ed O'Keefe. Ed, this was a big and much-needed win for Joe Biden in South Carolina. 
What does this mean for him going into Tuesday? Well, his team would tell you this is the momentum they need to convince any late deciding voter who is not a fan of Bernie Sanders to side with them instead. Our hope is that by the end of Tuesday, he emerges as the clear alternative to Sanders. It's pretty mathematically impossible, based on what polling is showing us right now, for somebody to surpass Sanders, especially because he's going to have such a big win, it looks like, in places like California. But they're hoping, the Biden team is, that in the next few days they're able to raise millions of dollars and, again, convince people that he is the leading alternative. Anthony, does he have the enthusiasm that you say Sanders supporters? Well, that remains a key difference between these candidates, which is that Bernie Sanders supporters are the most enthusiastic of all the top candidates. That's why his numbers remain so stable. Those folks turn out for him. But Joe Biden still has a challenge in that regard. His supporters are less enthusiastic about him. Can he motivate them to turn out, I think, remains a key question. And look, to that point, when you look at California, Texas, at these big delegate halls, the Democrats give out delegates just the top finishers. And so they could very conceivably end up splitting the delegates along with some of these other candidates, and then we move on into the spring. And there are a lot of delegates at stake here on Tuesday, 1,344. It's about 30 percent of what's needed for the nomination. So, uh, Ed, how do the candidates sort of crack the threshold? Explain some of the math here. So there's essentially two numbers to look at on Tuesday night. There's the perception number. Who wins the state? Who can say that they walked away winning the most states? But the more important number, ultimately, is the nomination number. Who gets closest to getting the 1,990 or 91 delegates you need to get over the threshold and and win that nomination? Because it's not winner-take-all. It is not. You have to hit 15% in each congressional district and in the states. And so the numbers to look for are 15. So if you look at our California and Texas numbers right now, Mike Bloomberg's in trouble because he's not hitting 15%. This could have been a very expensive overuse of his money if he can't hit 15 percent in those two states. But this is why, despite not winning anything so far, Elizabeth Warren is still in this race, because she sees that she's doing well enough in California and in Texas and in a few of these other states, likely, that she can get above 15 percent and keep a pool of delegates that keeps her in the race going into later March and April. And that Bloomberg number that you talk about is so critical, because if he does do just well enough to pick up delegates, if he picks up delegates in some regions of these states, even if he doesn't win them, then that changes the math for everybody else. Now he's a player, but if he falls just short of it, then all those delegates can go to other top candidates, to a a Biden or to a Sanders, and that changes the math going forward for them. And can $400 million in ad spending close that gap? That's the big gamble. It could potentially. Look, and tonight he's, he's doing something that hasn't been done in a while. He's buying three minutes of advertising on NBC and CBS to talk about the coronavirus and trying to cast himself as somebody who's a competent manager uh, who could probably help solve this problem and would have tackled it sooner than the president. He can spend as much as he wants, but if he doesn't hit 15% in these states on Tuesday... It will have been for naught, essentially. Uh, Certainly, they believe that they can go on into Florida and Arizona and Illinois next uh, and and try to compete in later March contests. But perhaps the biggest loser last night in South Carolina was Mike Bloomberg because Joe Biden did so well. They needed Biden to stumble or to only win narrowly to help make the argument that he's the better moderate alternative. It couldn't have felt good for Tom Steyer to have spent over $300 million, $200 million, almost $300 million on spending. It's uh, a warning ad. sign because South Carolina was his, was his Petri dish. It was right. his test that if he could do it there, he could do it anywhere. He couldn't. So, Anthony, uh, and Ed, there are a lot of headlines after South Carolina saying this is now a two-person race, but there are still a lot of people on the field. It remains a multi-candidate race. There's no question about it. And I think part of that is you look at Bernie Sanders and you look at, despite that enthusiasm that he has, can he grow it? Can he draw people to him? And when we ask folks, most of the people supporting Sanders say they've already liked him. They've liked him for a long time. But far fewer say they've taken, taken a second or third look at him as he's won these early states. So can he translate any success he's had into momentum going forward and build on that 25, that 30 percent that he's already got, that, I think, remains a key question. This will not be clean. This is going to be a messy contest. It's different than what we've seen before because we have so many candidates. We're down to seven, the magnificent seven, perhaps, who are going into Tuesday. Will the field shrink after Tuesday? Probably. But again, if you're somebody who can hit viability, 15 percent in a few of these states, you have no reason to get out yet.
It makes for some exciting uh, political watching on Tuesday. And very little Thanks. sleep. And yes. Very little sleep. A very long night with delegates coming as we go, as we go. All right. Well, we'll, we'll gear up for that with both of you. Thank you. We'll be right back. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. For a closer look at how prepared we are for the coronavirus here in the U.S., we turn to former FDA commissioner and physician, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Good to have you here. Thanks. You served in the Trump administration. Uh, what do you think the administration is doing now that is right, wrong in its handling of the virus? Right. Well, certainly expanding the diagnostic capability is the right move. Um, we're going to have the capacity by the end of this week to diagnose probably 10,000 people a day or screen 10,000 people a day with the public health labs, 100 labs doing 100 tests a day. By the end of the week after that, we'll probably bring on another 10,000. So we'll have testing capacity of perhaps as much as 20,000 a day by the end of the next two weeks once we bring on the academic labs. That was really a critical step, bringing on those academic labs mm -hmm. and, and leveraging their capacity. These are the major medical centers. Um, what we need to do now is make a real concerted effort to get a therapeutic. We know when this started, but we don't know when this is going to end. And what's going to end it is our technology. Our savior here is going to be our technology. And we need to make a really robust effort to try to develop a therapeutic. Meaning a treatment? A treatment or a vaccine, but a, a therapeutic, a treatment is going to be more likely to have, be available in the fall. A vaccine's a much longer way off. And we always knew when that once-in-a-generation um, strain came along, and this might be that strain, that what we were going to have to depend on was our science and something to stop it, like a treatment or a vaccine. A treatment, again, we could have by September, October, potentially. But more testing means more positive Result? I mean, you're saying basically expect the number of those who've been diagnosed with the virus to also increase? It's going to increase. There's, right now, there's probably hundreds or low thousands of cases. Everyone's hundreds or low thousands of coronavirus cases in, in the US, U.S. that aren't reported? That aren't reported yet. It's a big country, 340 million people, 330 million people. So anyone's individual risk is, is still very low. But we need to get those cases diagnosed and identified so we can start getting people quarantined and into treatment and prevent more spread. We need to start mitigating the implications of the spread. There was an analysis out today um, by Trevor Bradford, very good researcher out of the Hutch, looking at the genetic strains in Washington state. And by looking at the strains and the drift between the different strains for the people who have been diagnosed there, He's suggested that there's perhaps hundreds and maybe low thousands of cases. It's an interesting analysis. Um, there probably are more cases. We have community spread now in Washington State, California, perhaps Illinois, Oregon. Um, so certainly hundreds of cases. So has the administration been slow in its response? Well, look, I think the decision the administration made to block the travel, which was controversial at the time, clearly bought us time. It, it slowed the introduction of the virus into the country. The virus was probably here at that time, but it slowed additional cases. The question is, what did we do at that time? I think there are some things we did that were very smart. We got the country prepared. One of the mistakes, one of the challenges was getting the diagnostic testing in place. I think what, what we should have done, and I don't want to, you know, armchair quarterback this, we relied on the CDC. We always rely on the CDC in a public health emergency. But simultaneous to that, we should have also been reaching out and trying to get the laboratory-developed tests into the game and the manufacturers who have diagnostic capability. We've done that. Um, and, you know, a couple of weeks went by, and they did that, and that is now in place. And those labs are going to be coming online. So we course corrected. Um, I think what it teaches us, if you're looking back, what is the teachable moment? It's don't take a linear approach to these crises. Take an all of the above approach, and we need to do that now in a therapeutic. We we can't put all our eggs in the vaccine basket. We need to be looking at antibody-based prophylaxis treatments, vaccines, and all of the above approach. If case one doesn't work out, we have other options. So you'd suggest that's the conversation the president should have tomorrow with the pharmaceutical companies? Tomorrow is the vaccine manufacturers. I think we need to look at the companies that, that can develop antibody-based prophylaxis as well. We did that against Ebola. That is actually what we could potentially have for the fall, fall or a small molecule drug that's currently on the shelf trying to repurpose it for this. Uh, the NIH director, Anthony Fauci, the doctor, said that from what he's seen, if you get infected, you likely won't get reinfected. But there seems to be so much we don't know. If someone has just sort of mild or moderate symptoms, how do they last? How do you know to go and get tested? That's the challenge here. You don't. Um, you know, there isn't, 
the spectrum of disease here is very wide. A lot of people are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, but they shed virus and they're still infected. They can still transfer the virus, and a small percentage get very sick. And so it's probably the 80% that are mildly symptomatic or even asymptomatic that are the ones that are spreading it. The other thing is that people who get very sick don't get very sick right away. The time to hospitalization in, in different studies was 9 to 12 days. So they start off with cold-like symptoms, and then they progressively get more ill. And it's in that phase that people are spreading it. There was a very interesting analysis in the New England Journal of Medicine about two weeks ago that looked at viral load and viral shedding mm -hmm. across a spectrum of disease. And the people who are mildly symptomatic shed as much virus as the people who are very sick. And that's atypical. Typically, uh, the amount of virus you have in shed to, in, in some diseases comports with how much, um, how much virus you have. Okay. Doctor, thank you very much for coming on and Thanks giving us your analysis. We'll be back in a moment with a look at Super Tuesday and more. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. We're back with our panel. We've brought in two of the big guns from the New York Times today. Edward Wong is a diplomatic correspondent, and Michael Crowley is a White House correspondent covering foreign policy. Good to have you both here. Thanks, Margaret. Margaret. Uh, I want to start on what we haven't mentioned thus far in the show, that the president has made a choice to run the intelligence community. He's going to re-nominate a congressman, John Ratcliffe. Is he actually going to go through and get nominated and, and confirmed? Well, that's a big question. You know, President Trump was getting close to uh, nominating uh, Congressman Ratcliffe back in the summer and met so much resistance from senior Republicans in Congress who said, this man is not qualified. He's only been on the Intelligence Committee for a year, may have inflated his resume, and is a much more partisan than other people who have held that job. The president pulled back and didn't do it. And the question is now... Um, has Ratcliffe changed any minds? There's not a lot of evidence to that, but there may be a little bit of a game going on here because the president has installed Richard Grinnell, his ambassador to Germany, in that job in an acting basis. And because of complicated things that have to do with the, the, how long acting directors can serve, by nominating a new person, even if President Trump doesn't think Ratcliffe can get confirmed, that allows Rick Grinnell to stay in that job for a longer amount of time. There's another theory that Rick Grinnell is even more unpalatable to people in Congress than Ratcliffe, so Ratcliffe may be the more acceptable alternative. So there's a lot going on here, and people are trying to figure out what's real and what isn't. Well, I bring that up first because it gets to some of what we have been talking about today in terms of confidence in professionals versus political choices made for political reasons and confidence in hard fact and in intelligence. Ed, I know you've been following as you always do, uh, you lived in China for so long and you f followed the origins of this outbreak of corona. When you heard uh, the administration this week change its language so many times in describing and characterizing response, um, what did you make of that? And what do you make of what is actually known in terms of what China is sharing with the U.S.? Well, I think that um, everyone would agree that full transparency or um, a large amount of transparency on this virus is necessary, both, you know, to um, push forward with expertise um, on addressing the virus, plus calming public fears over it. And I think when an administration or government appears to be non-transparent on it, then that creates problems. I think that um, the Trump administration really grappled with that this past week uh, when you saw President Trump come out and say it was a new hoax by the Democrats or when and his chief of staff went out and, and said the media is covering this because right. they think it's going to take down the president. Right. And I think that um, they're trying to adjust the language now from what I can tell. But I think that, uh, you know, there's valid criticism of that. And I think if you compare that to the way Beijing reacted, there are some parallels in that. Uh, Communist Party officials, Chinese officials really covered up the start of the virus. And there's a lot of information coming out these days that perhaps it started earlier and that they kept the public from learning about it. We know that one of the key whistleblowers, Dr. Lee, mm -hmm. tried to warn healthcare professionals in a private chat group about it. And then he was um, even taken in by the police because of that and admonished. Yeah. Michael, I mean, does the president now have the credibility and, and the trust of the public at a moment 
of crisis when you need it most. No, that's a huge problem here, Margaret. Think back to what happened when Hurricane Dorian was hitting the United States last summer. President Trump made an inaccurate comment about the hurricane's path and was criticized for it. And then a day or two later, he's holding up a map showing the storm's forecasted path in the Oval Office. And it appears to have been doctored with just the kind of Sharpie pen that President Trump loves to use to sign documents. It really looks like they were altering information they were giving the public to make the president look good, to cover up for uh, a mistake he had made. And President Trump has repeatedly bungled basic facts, including numbers of victims in the country. Yesterday, he got the gender wrong of the person who died in Washington, although he may have been briefed inaccurately. I will say, Margaret, that I do think that that briefing yesterday was a step in the right direction. Having all those health experts there, particularly Dr. Fauci, there were questions about whether he was being muzzled. He said he was not. One of the nation's foremost authorities on these things. And I think President Trump understands he doesn't, he wants the markets to bounce back. The markets want to see that kind of expertise and Trump, uh, expertise and, and, and credibility. And at least yesterday there was a, a step in that direction. Well, uh, we will see when markets open tomorrow what they thought of it, but certainly for uh, the public. We'll continue to follow the details of this as we have on Face the Nation. Thank you all today for watching and each week as you do. We'll see you Tuesday night for CBS News' special coverage of the Super Tuesday results. We go on the air here on CBS at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, and our CBSN coverage starts at 5 p.m. as well. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.